Good morning, Gresham Bible Church. So excited to be here with you this morning. What a wonderful passage we have. Would you please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1? And we're going to be in verses 15 to 23. Colossians chapter 1. Not far from the northern border of Israel is the Baneus Waterfall. Uh, the Baneus Spring rises from the base of Mount Hermon, and then it flows about a mile through a gorge, and then it becomes the 33-foot-tall Baneus Waterfall, and that is the headwaters of the Jordan River. Now, I was just a kid from Oklahoma when I took that picture, and to me, it was the most spectacular waterfall I had ever seen. But now I live at the mouth of the Columbia River Gorge, and I'm a waterfall snob. Don't be a waterfall snob. This is still, this is beautiful. This is majestic. 33 feet, wow. So the Beneus Waterfall, up there in the north, um, in the Old Testament, the tribe of Dan was given the area there around the waterfall. And uh, then King Herod the Great, he built a temple nearby to honor uh, Augustus Caesar. And then when Herod's son, Philip, took over reign of the area, he renamed the city Caesarea Philippi, okay? It was in Caesarea Philippi, maybe even in sight of this waterfall, that Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's from Matthew 16. And this is known as Peter's great confession. He confesses that Jesus is the Christ. That is, he is the Messiah. That is, he's the anointed one. And who gets anointed? Kings get anointed. So Jesus is the Son of God, and he's the king. One of Jesus' apostles was not there that day. The apostle Paul was not yet following King Jesus. And many years later, Paul would deal with that question, who do you say that I am? And he deals with it in his letter to the church at Colossae. Error and heresy were creeping into the church in those early days. Some were saying, ah, Jesus was just one of the created angels. There were others that were saying, Jesus was a God, but he wasn't a real man. Paul deals with these heresies by laying out a clear and concise picture of who Jesus really actually is. So let's read together. Colossians 1, 15 to 23, and we will see how Paul answers that crucial question, who do you say that I am? Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, 
All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help. Father, fill our minds with Jesus. Reveal to us who he really is. Would you open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law? And I thank you in advance for your help. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. This is a two-parter, two-part sermon this morning. The answer to the question, who do you say that I am? It's verses 15 to 20. And then there's a follow-up question. What are you going to do about it? Verses 21 to 23. verses 15 to 20 are so packed full of glory that many scholars believe Paul is quoting a hymn. Well, I love when preachers do that, right? They're bringing a message and to drive it home, they quote from a song that we're all familiar with, and it really brings things together. Well, whether or not this is a hymn, that's debated among the scholars. Either way, The point is, this is the most Christological, the most Christ-packed, Christ-infused passage in the entire Bible. It's worth our time to take each phrase and unpack its implications and, and to bask in the wonder and to be amazed at our king. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. He, the he, is pointing back to verse 13, his beloved son. So, Paul is talking about God's beloved son, Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. No one's ever seen God. He's invisible, but if you want to see God, look to Jesus. He is the image of God. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. That was in the call to worship this morning, Hebrews 1.3. The word here for image is icon, and that reveals a little more about what Paul is getting at. Jesus is the icon of God. He, He stands in for God, representing God to us on earth. And that word's used in ancient coin making, 
you'd have a die, right, a master die, that's called the icon, and you stamp it in the hot metal, and you get a coin. And then all these coins are identical, they all match the icon. But better than the die and the coin, Jesus is not a copy of God. Jesus is God. He is the image of God. And that idea of image takes us back to Genesis. Humanity, you and I, all of us, we were created in God's image. Jesus Christ is God's image. He is who we were supposed to be. Unfallen humanity, humans before sin, those few moments before Adam fell, looked more like Jesus than anyone ever has. William Barclay writes, look at this Jesus. He shows you not only what God is, he also shows you what man was meant to be. Here is manhood as God designed it. Jesus is the perfect manifestation of God and the perfect manifestation of man. There is in Jesus Christ the revelation of Godhead and the revelation of manhood. And our end goal, our, our striving, our destiny, is to again look like Jesus. Paul's going to say later in Colossians 3, that if we've been raised from spiritual death, if we've believed in him and been redeemed, then we've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And in Romans 8, Paul says, we've been predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. God's goal for us is to be conformed to the image of his son, who himself is the image of the invisible God. Verse 15 continues, He is the firstborn of all creation. This does not mean he was the first to be born, nor does it mean he was the first one created. The Jehovah's Witnesses want to use this verse to prove uh, Jesus is secondary, he's just a created being. To the original audience, to the, to the church in Colossae, firstborn meant first place. It's not a chronological term. It's a term of priority, of position, of supremacy. The Colossians would hear Paul say, he is firstborn of all creation, and they would know he means Christ outranks all things in creation. He is first place. A quick example to prove this is in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. God says, Israel is my firstborn son. Now, what do we know about Israel? The nation of Israel was not the first nation, and I think more significantly, Israel the man, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Israel the man, he was not Isaac's son who was born first. Esau was born first, and then Jacob, and then Israel. So what is God saying by saying, Israel is my firstborn son? God is saying, Israel is his priority. Israel is his covenant people. Israel is the nation through whom salvation will come to the whole world. And so when you read firstborn in the Bible, it's usually not referring to chron chronology. Christ is the firstborn of all creation means he outranks all things in creation. 
He's the most important. He's supreme. Let's go to verse 16. For by him all things were created. See, if the Jehovah's Witnesses would just keep reading, they would see he couldn't have been created because by him all things were created. Come on, just keep reading. By him all things were created. He is there in Genesis 1 at the very beginning, participating with the Father, creating all things. The Apostle John paints the picture beautifully when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. When God said, let there be light, the Word, who is Christ, made it happen. What a picture. My favorite of the Chronicles of Narnia is book one, The Magician's Nephew. And it's all because of the scene when Aslan creates Narnia. And he does it by singing. He sings Narnia into existence. Perhaps God sang our world into existence. Whether he did or not, it was by Christ, by the word, that all things were created. And in case you were wondering what is included in all things, verse 16 keeps going. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Jesus Christ made all things in heaven and earth. You find it in heaven, Jesus Christ made it. You find it on earth, Jesus Christ made it. If it's visible, he made it. If it's invisible, he made it. This is, this is universal. This is all things. I've been fascinated by the James Webb telescope. It has produced some stunning photos of the universe. This photo was published on Tuesday, and somehow it's 340 light years across. It's staggering. And it's, this is called the Tarantula Nebula. Pretty cool. It includes tens of thousands of never-before-seen stars. The, the group of blue right there in the middle, scientists have never seen it before. Some cosmic dust has been in the way. And this James Webb telescope has infrared cameras that can penetrate through there and show us stuff we've never seen before. Jesus Christ made that. And I shake my head when I see the headlines that go along with the photos like this. Uh, this headline said, Scientists puzzled because James Webb is seeing stuff that shouldn't be there. <laughs> Who are you, oh man, to decide what should or shouldn't be there? Well, the headline was provocative enough. I clicked, clicked the link and had to see what they were talking about. And they have models that predict what they're going to find when they get to different parts of the universe, when they search deeper and deeper into space. And an astronomer from UC Santa Cruz, go banana slugs, he's, he's quoted in the story, and he's talking about this photo, and he says, the models just don't predict this. How do you do this in the universe at such an early time? How do you form so many stars so quickly? I'll tell you how. Jesus, 
the king of the universe created it. There's not a square inch in all the universe that was not created by our king, and that is not for our king. Every photo sent back by that telescope is an opportunity to worship the king. His wisdom and his majesty and his creativity know no bounds. By him, all things were created. And then Paul mentions thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. And here he's talking about the spiritual realm. God created all the angels and the demons. Dr. John MacArthur asserts that this list is the ranking of the spiritual forces. You know, like in the military, generals and majors and captains and so on. Perhaps. The point is, Jesus Christ created all things. Verse 16 keeps going. All things were created through him and for him. These, These little prepositions are so important. By him, all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus Christ is the beginning of creation. That's the by him. He's the means of creation. That's the through him. And he's the end goal. He's the purpose of creation. That's the for him. All things were created through him and for him. All things. Especially you, my friends. Justin. You're created for Christ. And Jenna and Mike and Dan. The king of the universe created you for himself. So think of the implications. He made you. You were made through him and you were made for him. You owe him everything. Are you living your life for Christ? Are you walking in him? Are you continuing to believe? Are you remaining stable and steadfast? You were made for him. Let's move to verse 17. And he is before all things. He is first. He is first place. He's the firstborn of creation. This points to the fact that he was before creation. He existed before creation itself. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus himself said that in John 8. And verse 17 goes on, And in him all things hold together. We've discussed by him and through him and for him. And now we're in him. And in him, all things hold together. Consider what this means. You woke up this morning in one piece because Christ held you together. Your car got you to church this morning because Christ held it together. The chair you're sitting on is supporting you because Christ holds it together. And he holds it together for himself. You were made for him. He's the center of the universe. 
The universe owes its continuing existence to Jesus Christ. Life only makes sense when Christ is kept at the center. Looking to Christ, keeping Christ the center of our lives, is the answer to all our brokenness. Christ holds all things together, should be the ballast in our boat that keeps us from tipping over when the storms come. He holds all things together, so when things don't make sense to us, we can bow before the King and trust His limitless goodness, His sufficient grace, His never-stopping, Never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I hope that's your attitude when disaster comes your way. You can say this is painful and this is sad and this doesn't make any sense, but then I hope you say, but I trust you, King Jesus, that you hold all things together, that you are in control, and I submit to you. So who do you say that I am? Got anything else? Paul? Well, Paul does. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. The church is a body. We're arms and legs and elbows and feet. And Jesus Christ is the head. Think of your own head. How important is it? What does your head do for you? It's hard to overstate the importance of our head. I never thought I would say that sentence. I need that on a throw pillow, maybe. It's hard to overstate the importance of our head. Everyone needs a head. You can't live without your head. Jesus Christ is the head of the Big C Universal Church, and Jesus Christ is the head of Gresham Bible Church. We trust, we trust him to lead us. Wherever the head goes, we go. And whatever happens to our head happens to us. He died, and we died to sin. He rose, and we too will rise. He lives forever, and we will live forever with him. He is the head of creation, and he is the head of the church. And verse 18 continues. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He's the beginning. He's first. I had to group all of these phrases together so that we could see the echo to verse 15. Verse 15, he's the firstborn of all creation. And verse 18, he's the, he's the firstborn from the dead. Again, firstborn, it's not conveying chronology, but supremacy, status, priority, position. He's not the first one to rise from the dead. In John 15, Jesus himself raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. Firstborn from the dead means he is the one who defeated death. He is supreme over life and death. He conquered death so that in everything he might be preeminent. He might be first place. He is preeminent in creation. All things were made by him, through him, for him. He is preeminent in the church. He's the head. Where he goes, we go. He is preeminent. Christ is preeminent. That's a word you might not have used this week. I didn't, so I looked it up. Preeminent, surpassing all others. The Greek word used is literally first place. To be first, to hold first place. Christ is first place. He's preeminent. He's supreme. Now that word, 
supreme or supremacy has some new or different meanings in our world today. Just know that the way we're using it in this series, the supremacy of Jesus in all things, we mean it to say Jesus is towering above. He is excelling. He is matchless. He is unequaled. He is unrivaled. He is ultimate. He is supreme. He is preeminent. Let's go to verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God. God, in all his fullness, fills the universe. He's omnipotent. He's everywhere, all the time, all at once. God was pleased. God chose, in all his fullness, to dwell in Christ. God came near, and God filled the God-man, Jesus Christ. Again, you want to see God? Look to Jesus. Psalm 68 says that, that God desired to dwell in the temple, on the temple mount in Jerusalem. And now he is pleased to dwell in Christ, the new and better temple, the new place to go to meet God. The Israelites went to the temple to meet God We go to Jesus to meet God. This sentence continues into verse 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. He is the reconciler of all things. Reconcile is to restore friendly relations between to cause to coexist in harmony, to make compatible. So God dwelling in Christ, and and this is through Christ, he restores friendly relations to himself. Now this, this isn't saying salvation for all things, as if Paul were a universalist. This is the restoration of all things. Sin and death entered the world, and God subjected all of creation to futility. That's Romans 8.20. And then Romans 8.21 says, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And that happens through Christ. Through the reconciliation of Christ, Christ brings peace and harmony. And we'll get back to reconciliation in a few verses, but in the meantime, verse 20 continues with how this this reconciliation will be accomplished. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Douglas Moo writes, Through the work of Christ on the cross, God has brought his entire rebellious creation back under the rule of his sovereign power. Now this is a fact, but it falls in the already, not yet category of God's kingdom. Peace is secured and available to believers today but it is not yet established globally, cosmically, quite yet. Not until King Jesus returns to establish his kingdom forever, permanently, on the new earth. The blood of his cross is not just for your sins. It's for the thorns in your garden. All things will be reconciled, will be restored. That's Paul's answer to, who do you say that I am? 
creator of all things, holder togetherer of all things, head of the church, the beginning, preeminent, first place, fullness of God, reconciler of all things. Now, what are you going to do about it? We've been high in the heavens of his matchless glory, and now we turn our gaze down. Now we get personal and direct. We've gone from the the hymns and the he is, and now there's a lot of yous. Now we apply the theology. Let's look, at, let's look at what we once were. Verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, you and me too. I'm, let's do we. I'm including me in this. We were alienated from God. We were separated from God. We, we couldn't reach him if we tried, but we weren't interested in trying because we were also hostile in mind. We were enemies in our minds to God. And not only that, we were doing evil deeds. We are alienated, evil-doing enemies. Yes, that's about right. Apart, away from God, our minds lead us to evil behavior. That's who we once were. Have you read through have you read enough Paul that you know what's coming next? He'll tell you what you once were and then he'll hit you with a with a but God. You were dead but God made you alive. That's Ephesians 2. We don't have a but this time, but we get it now. All right? Let's see where we now stand in verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. We once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. He has restored friendly relations between us and God. He has made peace between us and God. While we were enemies, he died to bring us back to God. And it says here, Jesus had a body of flesh. His body was real. His flesh was real. Paul is piling up words here to get you to know that Jesus really is a man. He's just said that he he created all things, and by him all things hold together. He is very God of very gods, and he was susceptible to suffering. He was very man. He had a body of flesh, and he died. And by dying, he reconciled you to God. If we were to be wild enough to consider God coming to earth, like if this was our idea, God becoming a man, the creator of all things, the fullness of God in a human body, we might expect some things. We might expect him to do miracles. Well, Jesus sure did that. The blind see and the lame walk and the dead live. We might expect him to exert some control over nature, over his creation. And Jesus did that. He, he calmed stores and he calmed storms and he walked on the sea. We probably expect him to have power over angels and demons. And he did that. He cast them out with a word and they obeyed. No one, in this little thought exercise, no one would expect God to die. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son 
that through his body of flesh by his death, we would be reconciled to God. Verse 22 continues with the reason that we have been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You are at peace with God. You are reconciled to God in order so that Jesus can present you to the Father, holy and blameless and above reproach. In other words, as Paul says elsewhere, your salvation, your redemption, your reconciliation is in order to conform you into the image of Jesus, who is the image of God. We've gone from God's enemies to his friends to his image. This is that transfer from the prayer in verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And finally, we arrive at verse 23, where we will see how we must go on. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. We will be presented before the Father, holy and blameless and above reproach, if we continue in the faith. If we remain stable and steadfast. If we don't shift from the hope of the gospel. We must persevere. We must make it to the end still believing. My friends, Jesus is not a get-out-of-hell-free card. He is the God-man, creator of all things, sustainer of all things, who came near the fullness of Almighty God in a body of flesh, and he bled and he died to reconcile you to God, to make you at peace with God, to make you a friend of God, and to present you to God, holy and blameless and above reproach. You have been reconciled to God in order to live a life that God approves. Before God, believers in Jesus are holy and blameless and above reproach. We are positionally holy. We need to live practically holy. You will be presented to the Father, holy and blameless and above reproach, if you continue in the faith. And verse 23 concludes, The gospel you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The gospel is for everyone, everywhere. Jesus commissioned his disciples to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. The gospel's destiny is to be proclaimed in all of creation. The gospel is the one universal answer to the quest for fulfillment. And then at the end there, Paul is setting us up for the next section, bringing himself back into the story, reminding us that he, Paul, he's the one writing this, and he's a minister. He's a servant of the gospel. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes if you continue in the faith. But maybe, maybe you're going to argue me on that. But, you know, oh, Christianity, it's not a try-hard religion. Christianity, 
It's not about what I do. It's about what Jesus did. Yes and amen. Hallelujah. Christianity is about what Jesus did. Or maybe you say, wait a minute. Our, our prayer focus just yesterday, during this week of prayer, we were praising God that he has delivered us. We weren't praising God that he will deliver us. We were praising him. He has delivered us. Yes. Amen. He has And we still have to take this if seriously. He has delivered us from darkness so that we will continue in the faith. We must continue. We must finish well. I've been working on an illustration for this for quite a while and finally found the sermon that it fits. And I think I'm ready. Here we go. Poke holes in it. We'll do that later. Okay. The Christian walk is not a walk in a meadow. It's not a a walk down a path or a sidewalk. The Christian walk is you're in the middle of a rushing river. And our goal is upstream. And we're in water up to our armpits. So we continue in the faith as we push and strive against this current. And the, the current here is our flesh, our sin. It's the world. It's the devil. It's all those things out to get us. So if you stand still in a river like that, you're toast. You're gone. The current pushes you back, and it's a constant battle to gain any ground. But Jesus has a boat, and he rows up beside you, and he offers you his hand, and he says, come to me, and I will give you rest. And he pulls you up in the boat, and now the water The current, the world is the farthest thing from your mind. And Jesus reminds you what he has done for you. And he quotes for you Ezekiel 36. I gave you a new heart and a new spirit I put within you. And I removed the heart of stone from your flesh. And I gave you a heart of flesh. And I put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus' blood shed on the cross secured for us a new heart and the power to please him and to walk with him. So you're good in the boat for a little while. But then something on the shore grabs your attention. Maybe it's a woman in a bikini. Maybe it's an Instagram post about a vacation you didn't get to go on or a friend you're jealous of. Maybe it's whatever happens on TikTok. I don't know. Whatever the distraction is, you jump out of the boat and you swim toward it. And you hit the water and the water's ice cold and immediately you realize what you've done. You you have traded Christ for an indulgence of the flesh. And maybe as you splash around in the water, you're trying to get a foothold, you pray, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus and his boat are right there. And he offers you his hand. And he says, I'm with you always. And he pulls you back into the boat. The Christian walk is staying in the boat. Fix your eyes on Christ. Fill your mind with Christ. The biblical word is abide in Christ. Stay in the boat. So we must continue in the faith and 
Jesus himself preserves us. Paul's going to say down in verse 29, I'm going to peek into next week. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We toil and struggle. Christ himself provides the energy. He's going to present you holy and blameless. And he's doing the work for you. Praise Jesus. The hope of the gospel is we sinners, we enemies, have been reconciled to God. We have been redeemed from slavery to sin. We've been forgiven of our sins. We've been empowered to live holy and blameless. The hope of the gospel is that God is for us. Who could be against us? He didn't even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Believer, you are already holy in status. Live in such a way to make your holiness a reality. Set your mind on Christ. Fill your mind with Christ. Abide in Christ. Stay in the boat. Continue in faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. If you're here and you haven't trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, who do you say that Jesus is? I hope you will look to him, the creator of all things. Through him you were made, and you were made for him, and he died He shed his blood on the cross to reunite you with God, your Father, because your biggest problem is that you're an enemy of God. Who do you say that he is? And then, what are you going to do about it? Trust him. That's what faith is. Trust him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. God, would you hold us close? Would you fill our minds with Jesus? Help us to abide in you. When we stray, would you discipline us quickly and bring us back? Lord, help us to continue. Help us to wake up tomorrow believing. And we trust you because you didn't even spare your own son. You gave him up for us all. And Jesus, we thank you for living, for dying, for rising. We thank you that you're coming back to reconcile all things to the Father. And Jesus, would you come quickly? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.